0: What's up, everyone? This is Cortland from IndieHackers.com, and you're listening to the Hackers podcast. On this show, I talk to the founders of profitable internet businesses, and I try to get a sense of what it's like to be in their shoes. How do they get to where they are today? How do they make decisions, both at their companies and in their personal lives? And what exactly makes their businesses tick? And the goal here, as always, is so that the rest of us can learn from their examples and go on to build our own successful businesses. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Daniel Gross. Daniel is not only a partner at Y Combinator, but also the head of artificial intelligence there. He's a YC alumnus himself, having started a search engine called Q, which was acquired by Apple in 2013. He's an angel investor in a number of startups whose names you'd recognize. Curiously, he's roommates with my bosses, Patrick and John Collison, the founders of Stripe, so we'll be sure to talk about that. And most recently, Daniel is the founder of what we're here to talk about today, a new company called Pioneer. Daniel, welcome to the Indie Hackers Podcast, and thank you so much for coming on. Of course, yeah. Thank you so much for having me. I'm a, a listener and, and delighted to finally be a participant in it. You have described Pioneer as a search engine for finding great people. Can you tell us a little bit about what that means and why you decided to create it?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, it, it may make sense to, to start with my story. Um, so I'm originally um, from Jerusalem, Israel. Uh, I grew up um, I grew up leading a very different life from the one I'm leading now. I was raised as, a, as an Orthodox Jew and uh, was always into computers and was always building things, but had no idea that I would end up in Silicon Valley. And my life really changed due to a very small, seemingly silly intervention, which is um, when I was getting ready to go to the Israeli army, I I kind of very haphazardly filled out an application to Y Combinator. And this is way back when in 2010, it wasn't really well known uh, at the time. And it was kind of a seen as a weird kind of West Coast activity that you might do. And I remember filling out the application, you know, tethered to my old Nokia phone, waiting for the, you know, uh, bytes to get sent over GSM or whatever, not really thinking much of it. Uh, And then I got accepted to go interview and then I ended up starting a company out of it. And that company uh, ended up getting uh, acquired by Apple after raising a series A and B from Sequoia. And then I found myself at the age of 23 running machine learning projects across, you know, the world's largest company across iOS, OS 10 and the watch. That was a very different trajectory from the one I, I thought I'd be on. You know, I thought I'd be married at this point with anywhere between, you know, four to 12 kids living on a hilltop somewhere in Israel. And to me, the most interesting part of that, of that story is how small and um, kind of weird uh, the intervention was that drastically altered my life's trajectory. And I think it altered it in very much a positive way. And this is kind of a theme as I started to, to research this and kind of become acquainted with friends out here in the Valley. I've been noticing this theme of very small moments causing very large life changes in people and often moments of luck. Uh, you know, more than anything else, I happen to run into the person at the coffee shop, or I bumped into this investor, can really change people's lives. And uh, I decided to start pioneer in an attempt to really scale that up, in an attempt to really scale these lucky moments, these lucky opportunities people have, because I think we want to live in a world where what creates great people is merely their innate ability. Um, that is to say, not the environment they're born in, or not happenstance or luck. And so we're trying to build a project that uses internet software to really remove luck from the equation. Uh, and so Pioneer is, as you said, kind of a search engine for ambitious, talented, creative people around the world. And we try to find them at a scale that's never been done before by predominantly using software, not people. And then when we find them, we try to give them all the benefits of of actually what, you, what you'd get, say, in an Ivy League campus, which I don't think is actually the professors. It's really the community, the motivation, uh, the things that cause you to punch above your weight. We try to give them all of that uh, in an incredibly scalable way by kind of bringing people onto our platform, which has a lot of kind of motivational gamification techniques. So fundamentally, it's, it's re- there's really two components to Pioneer. There's kind of the identification component. We want to find these, these young Einstein's, Ramanujans, Marie Curie's, or Elon Musk's. And then the second is we want to motivate and inspire them to pursue their goals. And their goals could really be anything. We'll, we'll help you know fund and support people that are working on fundamental research and machine learning, biology, chemistry, music, art, journalism, as well as starting a company. Uh, we really view as, as our my, our mission is to kind of 10x the amount of extraordinarily productive people around the globe. We want 10 times more Beatles, 10 times more Elons, 10 times more Steve Jobs. Uh, and so that's
0: kind of our mission, why I started in what we're trying to achieve. This is an extremely ambitious project. I mean, when you talk about removing luck from the equation for ambitious people to become successful it's hard to even know where to begin there. And you mentioned two problems that you're trying to tackle. One of them is finding these, these talented and ambitious and promising people. And the other half of the equation is motivating them and empowering them to succeed. Which of those two, two sides do you find to be the most challenging and the riskiest part to your success? Oh, that's a good question. Um, and of course, um, all businesses need to focus, right? And so
1: I'm already committing a, a fatal kind of sin by, by describing two focuses for us. But I, I think we must nail both to succeed. Initially, when uh, Pioneers launched in August. Um, so we're pretty new. Um, we've already uh, had thousands of people kind of play our motivational game and, and work on projects throughout the system. And I've shifted my thinking quite a bit. I think the, the, the kind of entire broader team has shifted their thinking a little bit, where we initially thought identification and kind of screening and selection was the real goal. And it turns out the important thing to focus on, and, and maybe harder, but the more important thing to really nail is the motivational aspect. And we learned this by talking to our users, um, which is you know something that I think you probably built indie hackers to engender people to do. We found out our users were using our product slightly differently than how we built it. See, we built Pioneer as kind of a repeated 30-day tournament that you can play over and over and over, where you try to accumulate as many points as possible over the course of 30 days by being productive on whatever your passion is. The more productive you are, the more points you get. And we thought what would happen is People would kind of play this 30-day tournament, they'd win, you know, if they become pioneers, and then you know, if, if if they don't become pioneers, they would kind of leave, and that would be the end of it. And and every 30 days we'd get a fresh batch of people. Whereas in reality, what's what happened, a kind of emergent property of the product, is people keep on coming back and back and back to it. Even people who win seem to want to come back and play again. That kind of caused us to really double down on the second goal. What really matters now to us is turning this this experience of working on your side project, following that kind of shower thought that you had uh, to its fullest
0: extent, by creating an incredibly compelling, motivating kind of online game. Describe this game to us. How exactly does one play Pioneer?
1: Yeah. So it starts off incredibly simply. You, all you do is you describe a little bit about yourself and a little bit about the project that you're going to do. You're again, your project could be anything we've had musicians apply we've had artists apply. We've had a lot of, a lot of young researchers apply. People that have at the age of 18 already done research with say NASA's JPL and are looking to follow some random idea they had slightly further We've also had people starting companies apply. The The key pattern is all of these people are working on the thing they dream about. And over the course of 30 days, you're going to try to accumulate as many points as possible throughout this Pioneer tournament. Uh, and there's a global leaderboard as well as regional leaderboards. And so you can kind of get a sense where you stand amongst all of the other children of the internet, as well as um, people in particular countries, you know, where you stand amongst you know, if you're, say, from Africa, everyone from Africa, from uh, from Europe and so forth. And the way you get points is predominantly by taking part in these little quests the system sets up for you. It's it's like a role-playing game. You've got different quests you can do. The primary quest is to submit kind of status updates on the progress you're making alongside your goal. And then what happens is everyone else who applied is reviewing and rating your status update And this accomplishes two things. One is it enables us to quickly figure out kind of who's making progress and who isn't. And two, very importantly, it enables people to read the progress other people are doing, which hopefully inspires them in turn. I think this is the really important psychological effect that you experience when you arrive within a network of elites or pros. So this could be the Ivy League, or when you start working at, say, McKinsey or Stripe, you suddenly realize wow. Other people here are really good and that causes you to punch above your weight and we've kind of operationalize that concept in software. There are some kind of side quests you can do um, to get some some additional points. But, you know, the big needle mover is submitting these progress updates in a
0: way where the community says, boy, you are moving quickly. You have a plan of attack and you are executing on it. This is fascinating to me, the way that you've structured Pioneer such that the community itself is what powers the program. You don't necessarily need a few arbiters of intelligence or talent or progress if everybody who's applying is actually doing that rating and reviewing themselves. What inspires you to use this model and what sort of programs or businesses do you look towards as inspiration for Pioneer itself?
1: Ah, good question. I mean, so I, sh- I should also preface and say that I think when anytime you're building, a having had a lot of experiences working on projects that involve crowdsourcing and machine learning, anytime you do that, you would to get the system off the ground properly, you want to start with supervision and dial it down to zero. So, we do have kind of industry experts that are going through the leaderboard and just making sure, and this is say, particularly important in the areas of research, that you know. The things that are getting upvoted are actually worthy of causes that are not totally fraudulent. And so, say, Tyler Cohen, men, you know, both mentoring and reviewing the young economists of the world, Stephen Wolfram for Mathematicians, Patrick for people, say, working on, you know, fintech startups. We try to have experts in every domain kind of make sure things are going in the right direction. But the dream that we're going to be fairly close to achieving either at the end of this year or early next is to really dial that down and to really let the community Drive things, and you can envision once you get enough data from experts how you'd do that, right? You'd you'd figure out, you know, ways to make voting kind of mirror what industry experts think is good. And you know, in terms of inspiration, largely, I actually have anti-inspiration in the sense that no one in our realm is doing what Pioneer does, but there's a lot of people doing it totally the wrong way, and it's quite astonishing to me, despite their closeness to the innovators, how kind of silly and arcane the admissions process is for the Ivy League you know these are these are people that are teaching the folks in the 21st century about how to build flying cars you know cure cancer uh, you know terraform the desert and yet the admissions process is run in something that looks and reads like an 18th century textbook where you have a dozen people reading thousands of applications that simply doesn't scale um, and so Mainly, um, the, our, main, our main goal is to never be that and to be the opposite of that as possible. There are, of course, inspiring models if you, if you leave our, our kind of industry of, of accelerating progress and focus on others, like think SoundCloud, YouTube, Reddit. These are really interesting communities that really use you know, crowdsourcing and machine learning to elevate content that otherwise would have never been seen. And that's really our goal is to elevate people that otherwise would never be seen.
0: I had Austin Allred on the podcast last year. He is the creator of a company called Lambda School, which is another counter-argument, you could say, to traditional education and maybe even the Ivy League. And the way that Lambda School works is that their business model sort of aligns their incentives with the best interests of their students. So specifically, Lambda School doesn't get paid up front like most schools. They only get paid if you as a student successfully go on to find a job which incentivizes them to actually do a great job preparing you to find a job, coaching you through interviews, et cetera, and making sure you get the best outcome as a student. And so that's sort of what they measure. You know, how many people are getting jobs? How much are they getting paid? I wonder what the equivalent is for you guys at Pioneer. How do you measure your success? How do you know that you're doing a good job?
1: Yeah, it's ironic you mentioned that. Some of the pioneers that um, that have won the tournament have kind of asked how they can help us the most. And, you know, weirdly, the way they these folks can help us the most is just by being great uh, at whatever project they're doing. Cause that alone will kind of increase the luminance on the organization. I think that's effect in fact, how Harvard Princeton and Yale got really notable is their alumni were really notable. And, and so, you know, it's, it's you mentioned incentive alignment, our incentives are, are quite aligned here as well. Economic incentives aside, the better they do, the kind of better we do. In terms of, you know, figuring out what success looks like for us, we, in the long term, you know, our, our vision, our goal is that, you know, five, six years from now, the Time 100 list, you know, has 20, 30, maybe 100% of them are pioneers, you know, because we want people that are changing society uh, and kind of propelling the world forward in many different ways. And, and it could be Avicii and, and it could be Steve Jobs. Uh, you know, I strongly believe that, you know, creativity and genius is both incredibly underinvested in and is across many domains. So that's kind of the long term metric, and, and the shorter term thing we look at is are other humans around the world finding whatever these pioneers do valuable. So obviously we did, or the, our community did; they won our tournament. And, but we just try to look at early indications of whether other they're providing value to other people. So for company, you know, revenue is a great metric for that. For research, you know, eyeballs or the eyeballs of the few getting attention from other, you know, notable researchers is, is important. For music, just getting. Getting spread out there is important. So for every different industry, um, you can kind of envision a, a different metric you'd want to track. The fundamental substrate is making things that uh, other humans genuinely find valuable and useful.
0: I think it's impossible to talk about pioneers, a company, without also and addressing some questions about you personally as the founder and what you've been through. I think it's been six years since you last sat in the founder seat yourself. Six years between when you sold your last business to Apple and when you started Pioneer. What are some of the ways that you've changed in that time period and how did those lead to you starting Pioneer as opposed to some other idea?
1: Gosh, um, (laughs) um, I have changed a tremendous amount. It is my goal to try to compress the changes I've gone through and the presumption that they're good to others in hopefully less than five or six years Honestly, the, I mean, the the, the experience of, of starting a company uh, and running a company and then running a, a pretty large organization at Apple was, the, the I think, the most educational experience I could have. I do not have the counterfactual where I spent those years, say, in college or the Israeli military, but I do know that I experienced tremendous self-growth and particularly around leadership, which is an area that I'm still kind of learning to be better in. But there's a lot of things you learn about yourself as you try to lead an organization, in many ways, being a founder is kind of like, it's not unlike, especially once you start hiring people and scaling, kind of, you know, being a little bit of a party promoter, wondering every single day, if people will just not show up to your party that day, Uh, because, you know, your personal brand is so intertwined, your personal sense of self-worth is so intertwined with the company, there's a lot of insecurity there that you got to deal with. And, and constantly kind of, you know, motivating people and, 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 uh, helping them accomplish their goals. And so there's, there's a lot to unpack in that particular realm of becoming a better leader. I think I've also become incredibly more self-aware and I don't know if to credit this to, you know, picking up the habit of meditation or, um, just growing up, but probably the largest psychological shift I've experienced is the ability to kind of step out and, and play life a little bit in third person view as opposed to first person which is incredibly important because you're, you're going to have days where things don't go well. And if you get caught up in your anger, as opposed to being able to kind of step out of the frame and be able to experience anger and kind of a third person and manage it, you won't be able to perform. And so, you know, becoming a, a, hopefully a better leader and, and, and certainly becoming more self-aware are probably two of the largest
0: changes. There's thousands,
1: though, but,
0: but those are two of the mastheads. What are some things about you that have stayed the same and not changed at all since six years ago when you sold your company?
1: Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. Some personality traits do seem to be both in me and and people that I've grown up with do seem to be fairly constant. Some seem fairly malleable. So for example, I think, you know, I'm a relatively disagreeable person. I don't mean that in the sense that I am blunt and kind of sad to be around. I certainly hope not. Um, But I do. I I mean, you'll tell me, but I, I do tend to keep my own opinions distinct from what other people are talking about. And I almost have a little bit of an adversarial default where someone will have an opinion and, and my default will be to question it slightly as opposed to kind of automatically assume it's true. That seems to be fairly deep uh, in kind of the neural substrate in my mind. I think I try to be fairly energetic. The number one thing that I have found, though, that I tell myself is incredibly constant in me and I th- I, I would hope you could never be out of me is I have a terrible ability to predict my own ability, if that makes sense. That is to say, I think I could probably almost always do it slightly faster than I actually can. And this is true across every domain from running to work to relationships. I always think I can do it. There's a lot of terms in academia that people have used this, you know, a growth mindset, what have you, but it's just the sense that I will probably be able to figure it out. And if there's two gifts I could give people in life that I'm happy I got. One is an innate sense of curiosity. And then two is this belief that like you could follow up on your curiosity and,
0: and yeah, you'll figure it out. So that stayed really constant and I feel really blessed it has. Yeah. That self-confidence and belief that you can accomplish things is so pays dividends because if you think that you can do things, you're much less likely to quit When the going gets tough because you think, okay, well, I can certainly accomplish this and maybe what I've tried so far didn't work, but that just means there's another way versus telling yourself the story that, oh, you failed once. There's no way for you to get there. Yeah.
1: And and you got to be careful
0: here, right? Because there are moments actually where uh, you should stop.
1: And it's funny to see, I see a lot of my uh, founder friends fail to do this, both with their companies and weirdly, like in other aspects of their lives. Like it's very common to hear a story where, you know, you got a friend who started working out and whatever it is, they went too hard. Their body told them to stop and they didn't. And they probably took a lot of pride in the fact that they're now injured weirdly, Um, (laughs) even though it's, it's, it's bad, you know, Oh, I, I I tried CrossFit, now I'm injured. And, and, and you tell them, wow, you're, you're so stupid for like over-exercising, but secretly you can kind of tell they take pride in it. And in similar veins, sometimes you meet people that work on the thing for too long. And so you can overdose on, on this attribute, Uh, I think the really important thing, though, is to kind of check, constantly check and rebalance where you stand amongst the peers you respect. Um, You know, one, one thing I don't believe that a lot of people do is that a lot of people believe it's bad to be driven by the opinion or the status that you have amongst others. You should strive to be contrarian. You should strive to have your own opinion, which I think is important. But a lot of people believe you should also like not care what other people think. That is actually really important training data because that gives you a sense of where you stand in the world. And I'm not talking about the masses. I'm not talking about Twitter. I'm talking about the 15 to 18 people that are kind of influential to you, that you really care about. I think it really makes sense to constantly recalibrate and and see where you rank in that leaderboard to kind of use pioneer parlance, where you stand there. And if those people kind of think your actions are bad collectively, it may be worth listening to them. So that's, I think, an important counterbalance if you have this kind of innate, I'm just going to give it a shot, uh, uh, attitude.
0: So there are many thousands of people listening to this podcast who would describe themselves as either currently founders or aspiring entrepreneurs who want to go on to do something. You've worked as a partner at Y Combinator. You've created Pioneer, where you're helping to find and motivate people to do something significant. What are the biggest roadblocks standing between talented, ambitious people and finding success and self-actualization?
1: One thing that I mentioned earlier is I do think there's a lot of luck involved, and 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 hopefully we can operationalize software that removes that, so that if you prove fairly quickly that you have the talent and the ambition uh, and the creativity, you just like get all the things you need. You get the resources in terms of like money, you get the mentorship, you get the other people to be around and to kind of cause you to punch above your weight. And that just happens, regardless of whether you are wherever you are in the world, young Ramanujan born in India, someone born in Africa, whatever. So luck is a massive component. And hopefully we can fix that. But I would say another mistake people make when starting companies, and and again, all these are things that I hope to operationalize and fix in software, but a, a mistake people make is I think they have a tendency, especially today, to go after overtly grand ambitions because it's... Uh, socially satisfying to do that, this is less so true I think in the in, in maybe in the indie hackers' community, but more broadly, people forget that all the things that ended up becoming quite large started very small, even SpaceX with all of its glory uh, I think was the origi- the original name for it was the Green Mars Oasis project, and the idea was that Elon uh, was going to buy some Russian rockets and launch a thing onto Mars and take a photo of a green plant on Mars, tweet it, shut down the company. And it would be an awesome PR stunt that would increase NASA's budget. But that was really it. And lo and behold, it's the largest private space company on the planet. So you can go case after case. And it's actually very humanizing to look at the old photos of like old Facebook.com, old Google.com and kind of realize these things seemed like very cruddy, stupid side projects and they got big. And I think if, if you're trying to figure out, if you're listening to this, and you're trying to figure out like, what to do with your project, you'd actually take strength in the fact that it may look small, uh, and it may look underrated, and not many other people are working on
0: it. Because that is literally the common theme in every single large company in existence today. And it's so twisted because, ironically, the same stories that end up inspiring a lot of people, these humongous success stories, you see somebody accomplishing something that you know, makes you say, wow, also end up sometimes demotivating people when you say, well, that's such a massive accomplishment. I can never do anything like that on my own. How do you, in the process of building Pioneer, get people to get over the hump and believe that they can do something that's truly worthwhile?
1: Yeah, our, so if you go to the website, you'll notice the, there's, we're very particular about the words we use. Um, the word company is not on the homepage. It's very much about projects. Uh, and so we're, we're trying very hard in our communication to people to kind of conquer the the first video game boss we have to defeat, which is the that of self-editing. Someone thinking this isn't for me. It is literally for anyone. You may not everyone will win, but pretty much anyone can play and anyone can get the benefits of it. And so I think I think that is the the first thing to, you know, to try out and and defeat. You know, afterwards, I, I think I think the other thing that that kind of that we're trying to help people with uh, that that a lot of folks struggle with is Sadly, when you're working on something, there's a, there's, for whatever reason, I haven't quite unpacked why, there's a psychological software bug in your brain where it is more satisfying to work on the thing than to show the thing to users. For whatever reason, the brain misprioritizes these activities. I think it's because it predicts there'll be more flow in working on the thing as opposed to showing it to people, which especially for the personality profile of company founders, slightly introverted Uh, is an emotionally taxing thing to do. Uh, And so they work on a lot of stuff and then they show it to people way too late or they don't show it to enough people. But you really have to feel like you're talking to users too much. That should be the kind of status update you write to yourself, to your family, to other folks on Pioneer. I've spoken to users too much. I'm hearing literally the same thing over and over and over. Because it is extremely unlikely that you're, regardless of, of, of whatever talents you're born with, it is extremely unlikely that your hypotheses around what makes a great product are going to be kind of correct in a one-shot fashion. You will have to course correct. That is like another extremely common theme across all these large companies. Airbnb, originally airbed very much was hooked on the idea of the host staying with you all the time which is, I think, a very small fraction of their business today. It's true that hosts will show you around, but, you know, you get your own room in your own place. Um, It's very much, you know, eating into hotel share. Uber, originally conceived really just as a Uber black, just like SUVs and and limos, very quickly realized from talking to the users that they needed to kind of try out lower-cost solutions with UberX. Uh, And so case after case, like, you'll notice all of these companies kind of evolve. They have slight tweaks, snap to grids, kind of in the in the in a Photoshop metaphor. Uh, and so you want to figure out as quickly as possible what are your snap to grids. And that requires you know, a cup of coffee and talking to 15, 20 users a day. And so I think if you do those two things, if you don't self-edit yourself out of oblivion and you actually engage a lot with
0: customers, uh, you stand to be pretty successful. So let's talk about sort of the behind the scenes of Pioneer and you as a founder building Pioneer itself. What were the first steps you took to get this from the idea phases where it was just, you know, something you were tossing around in your head to an actual existent business?
1: The first step was actually, it's pretty hard to articulate when it happened. It was probably 2011 or 12. I had this increasing sense of anxiety and angst talking to people and realizing that Again, there's so much weird luck and happenstance involved in success, and constantly wondering if there are ways to kind of remove that from the equation. I also, as a byproduct of becoming kind of an angel investor in a few companies like um, Gusto and, and Coinbase and Cruise, started to derive a lot of joy from from talking and kind of helping founders. This was kind of the initial era, uh, the the dark ages of pioneers. Very much a just the idea germinating, in, you know, in my mind over the course of many years. At some point, uh, I decided after talking to a few friends about it to actually uh, give this a shot. Um, and I've been working on a variant of Pioneer called AI Grant, uh, which is pretty much the same idea with far less software, just focused on the screening problem, not the motivation one, and really focused in the machine learning uh, research world. So trying to find promising machine, machine learning researchers uh, and fund them. And I was working on that with a friend of mine uh, named Nat Friedman, who today runs GitHub. And that proved to be a very good testing ground for thinking about Pioneer um, because it was a fairly similar model. And then um, you kind of mid uh, 2018, really started working on the software, brought on um, someone who used to work for me uh, or with me in my old company uh, named Rishi uh, to kind of start building out uh, the software. And uh, he's been quite instrumental in making, turning this into a real iPhone of a product, if you will. And then, uh, you know, a day in the life today is really your classic day in the life of a CEO where I'm desperately, you know, hanging on to about six different video game controllers, uh, trying to play six different games at the same time. There's the recruiting game, there's the pioneer growth game, there's the kind of pioneer operational logistics game. We have to send small amounts of money to large amounts of people around the world, which is actually a a very difficult problem. You know, there's the pioneer kind of fundraising game, there's the pioneer community game, just like making sure the current pioneers have a great experience, the current applicants have a great experience. There's, of course, you know, between two and four o'clock in the morning, a lot of just time that needs to be spent figuring out product. I'm just endlessly task switching between all of these things. Certainly on some days wondering why I left the um, relative zen of Apple, where at least there was like one clear thing to do. Um, but also, you know, enjoying the, the thrill of the process. Um, I mean, I know why I left Apple. I left Apple because I kind of wanted to ride the roller coaster again. And I'm certainly in it now. And so, you know, after we finished this podcast, I, I got a bunch of interviews with people we're trying to hire. And after that, I'm going to, try to bang out some code that will help us grow. And I'm going to go talk to some of our pioneers
0: and then I'm going to go talk at a conference. So yeah, the calendar is as dense as I can make it. So obviously you're working hard. You have grand ambitions for Pioneer. You want to turn it into something huge. Let's talk about your strategies for getting there. How do you play what you called the growth game for Pioneer?
1: Yeah. So it is, it is we literally view it as a game. I, I have a, a tendency to view pretty much everything in life as a game. Uh, I think it's an incredibly powerful metaphor. Um, just to take a quick uh, side quest here. I think it's incre- it is It is broadly speaking, incredibly underrated to kind of bring more and more of gaming UX into the productivity realm. There's something really fascinating about the fact that games, like if you think of Age of Empires as a concept, it's fascinating. Here you have millions of people spending hours a day voluntarily with no economic incentive to solve resource allocation problems. That's unbelievable. Like, well, why is that happening? Why are they doing that? You know, and it's easy to view that as a pejorative, but I feel that as really inspiring and interesting. Why, you know, what's going on that's great there that Gmail is lacking. And I think there's a ton to unpack in there. Everything from the response time of the app, you know, games have like 20 MS response time, 200 MS is, you know, uh, is, is not allowed. Um, to kind of clarity of goals, uh, to feedback that you get from the system. So anyway, uh, we really think of kind of everything as a game. And to that effect, we've turned growth into a little bit of a game. There's a leaderboard, um, not for the pioneer applicants, but for the people that are referring the best applicants on our website as well. And your score on that leaderboard, it's kind of fun is the composite score of people you refer. So if you refer one Einstein, you can win. If you refer a thousand simpletons, you may also win as well. And so we use that board of kind of referrals to motivate people to refer other folks to us. We we hand out very you know fun but mostly meaningless token prizes to the winners like pioneer swag. I think mostly people do it because they like competing and they like winning. And so that's one thing that we've done quite well. The next step for us is we're working on software now uh, that will enable us to reach. Kind of these different um, micro influencers in in kind of different communities, uh, which I actually think is is the more kind of important goal here. You can imagine the high school professor or the high school teacher in India is actually the person we want to reach because he knows who's really great. The person who's a grad student, you know, I don't know, somewhere in Africa probably knows which one of his peers is really great. So we're working on reaching those people in an effort to actually reach the end pioneers. And then the last growth, cool growth thing I should mention is we're blessed actually in the sense that the market that we're targeting is not properly valued by the kind of broader CPC market. So we can come up with cool ways to bid on CPC ads that are incredibly cheap and have incredibly wide reach because these folks are not buying your Dollar Shave Club uh, or, you know, your mesothelioma insurance. Um, For example, we look for people that are trying to get visas uh, into the United States and try to advertise on visa forms. We look for people that are looking for different publications or research papers. Our target audience isn't that wealthy or rich. And so the ads that we buy are actually incredibly leveraged and cheap. So that's kind of another cool third growth hacking technique that we use.
0: You spent most of the last two years as a partner at Y Combinator, angel investing, mentoring startup founders, and giving them all sorts of advice. What sort of advice have you given to founders that you've applied to yourself in growing Pioneer?
1: Hmm. Uh,
0: it's funny how much of my own advice
1: I go against. It it really goes to show you that, um, yeah, there's there's something going on in advice that's not quite well researched. It's, I think I think it's that there's the strategic value of the words that you get right. That's kind of part one, uh, and you can get that in a medium post or a book. And then there's the second thing, which is the person who told you those words. And it turns out for successful advice giving, you actually need really the second, not the first. Um, And the extreme variant of this for me was uh, Paul Graham when I was doing YSD back way back when, uh, you know, he he would give me a lot of strategic advice that I didn't necessarily follow, but occasionally he would tell me things that other people would have told me and I I would have discarded, but I immediately did it because it was PG that said it. Or he would just say random things to me and, and it would be incredibly inspiring and motivating to me because it was PG that said it. And I think when, when, you know, when thinking about the advice that you follow and the advice that you give, it is interesting that it's really, if you want to become a good advice giver is you want to figure out who are you in life in a kind of pseudo influence position for such that you can give them advice. Literally no one else can give. Cause I actually think the strategy is kind of out there. It's really clear what to do and what not to do when you're starting a startup. It's that the. The repeated mistakes people are making, there's something so gravitational there in the mistake, right, that you really need the strength of kind of a pied piper to pull you out of it. And I say this because, again, it explains why I, you know, should do better at following my own advice is you actually kind of need someone who's an influencer to me to tell me it. Practically speaking, though, to actually answer your question, probably the, the largest piece of advice I do successfully follow is we we do try to talk to our users as much as possible. Now, the twist on this is you, you, you do not and probably should not do what your users tell you to do, but you should engage with them a lot. And you kind of want to engage with them and figure out what the underlying problem is. Uh, take that as input and just add it into your kind of machine learning algorithm, not necessarily react to every single feature request. And so, you know, if someone will tell us, that they're really upset, and this happens, you know, frequently, they're really upset with Pioneer because their position dropped in the leaderboard. I don't view that as like, well, you know, that's bad. No one we should cancel the leaderboard. I try to really understand, like, basically it's a bad gaming mechanic because if you lose in a game and you don't understand why you have no interest in playing again because you cannot build a predictive model of how to win. And so that's the insight is that we need to have kind of better feedback when your position drops. Uh, So I think talking to users intelligently uh, is the kind of important thing that um, I used to give advice about that, that uh, that I think we've done well, you know, one opposite example, something I give advice about that I kind of screwed up is we're in a position now where we are uh, grossly kind of overbooked in terms of what we want to do. And it is, very, very common founder failure to not spend your time properly on recruiting and really focus on product against psychological misprioritization, I think. And I'm totally making that mistake right now. I mean, we, we really need to hire people. And if you looked at my calendar for the past week, I think maybe maybe 20% of it was spent on hiring, which is 100% my fault and, and something I need to rectify.
0: You've written about what you call the psychology of dread tasks, and I think that's somewhat related to what you're talking about now. And what you meant by that is, how can people do the things that they need to do, even when they don't necessarily feel like doing them? And it strikes me as a fairly important subject for founders, because starting a company is obviously difficult. A lot of startup failure can be attributed to people quitting when the going gets tough, or neglecting the important but painful parts of their business, or maybe even not getting started in the first place because the journey just seems so challenging. How can more of us do the things that we need to do, but don't necessarily want to do?
1: Doing the things you need to do um, is hard. I mean, so my framework for this, unsurprisingly, is somewhat similar to, well, to taking inspiration from from kind of games. At, at a super high level, it is interesting just to constantly introspect and figure out for every task that you've had that you didn't do that you were languishing on, just think about it. almost as if you're designing a product. What went wrong there? And... How could you fix that? For example, why do you find it easier, or why do we all find it easier to endlessly answer email versus getting our actual tasks that we need to get done? I think it's a lot of it is because email has novelty in it, right? Uh, You're constantly refresh. Email has direct accountability to other humans. There are other people sending you the email as opposed to you prescribing yourself. And third, there's many, but a third one maybe to highlight is. Email is very, there's this pleasant sense of accomplishment when you complete, you know, the task of sending an email. So it gets you stuck on this treadmill where you feel like you're making progress, but you're not. And, you know, when you start developing this mindset, you start realizing, huh, like how could I bring those attributes into getting the things I want to get done? And how could I build systems that have those similar properties? So practical thing in the case of novelty for me that I do, I have a to-do list every single day. That's really, that's really simple of all the things I want to get done that day. And I change it every single day and there's no carryover. You know, I, I, I literally write it from fresh every single day based on what's top of mind. I try to be very honest with myself. I do not try to oversubscribe myself despite, uh, you know, me psychologically wanting to, and I really try to develop this habit of, I will just get, I will at the bare minimum, get this done every day. And that accomplishes the novelty goal. It accomplishes the kind of dopamine hit goal that you have with email, which is I'm repeatedly winning at this fake game I've invented for myself. And so it's just an example of kind of reverse engineering what works to what's not working. Um, And I think that the real answer to your question is to to kind of take that everywhere. For every task you're not accomplishing, really try to figure out why am I not getting, why am I not motivated to get that done and kind of build a system around it? I, I, I think the most important rule is not really to think about what can I do to get X done, it's what can I do to get motivated to get X done. And that yields a significantly more interesting brainstorm.
0: So I've got a lot of personal questions I want to ask uh, about your life and about your opinions (laughs) on, on various things. Some may be more interesting than others. The first I want to ask is, what is it like living with Patrick and John Collison, the founders of Stripe? What kind of things do you guys talk about in the house? And how important is it for people to live or surround themselves with other talented and ambitious people?
1: I mean, living with them is a lot of fun. Uh, We all have similar personalities, I think, so it kind of works out. It's not too dissimilar, honestly, from Twitter. So, um, uh, And and occasionally we find we have nothing to talk about because we have all read each other's tweets and said all the things. So um, you can kind of have that experience virtually if you just engage engage with that product. I do think the environment you surround yourself by morphs you and changes you more than anything else um, because... Uh, it requires zero willpower. Basically environment is something you, it's a one-time CapEx expense on your willpower. You do it once you like fly out to a place or, you know, start working in a company or go to a campus or to go to school somewhere. And then it just yields dividends and it yields dividends in a lot of different ways. You you basically subscribe to again, kind of a leaderboard. You have these set of peers of people you're surrounded by and, and you're trying to figure out what attributes are, are good about them that you would like. Um, what attributes are are not interesting to you. And and it really morphs and, and changes you. And you, if you start really paying attention to people, you'll kind of see this. Like I, I do find it interesting as an outsider to strike the organization when I meet people who work there. It's very interesting how there's a common parlance of kind of micro expressions and ways they use to communicate. Some of which I sense are derived from Patrick, some some from John, some from other people in the organization. It's kind of the real life Slack emoji equivalent. And it's interesting how that spreads. And I think it's a byproduct of how influential people can be on each other. Uh, and I think if you can, you should move to a city, go to a place, work at a place, surround yourself by other people that, you know, will will be inspiring to you um, or will be influential on your thinking. If you can't, great news. You're born in the 21st century and the internet is available um, and in many ways Pioneer is an attempt to, again, to kind of operationalize that. It's that if you can't move, if you're not quite ready to move, we can at least try to give you some of those psychological benefits kind of entirely in software. Another another good hack for, quote unquote, surrounding yourself by influential people, if you can't do that, is reading about them. I find reading biographies very interesting, not in the information that you gain, but in kind of the... After-effect glow they have on you, where I feel like you're almost that person is kind of top of mind for you for a while. You know, if you read about John Rockefeller, that person, you kind of develop a little bit of his personality or mental models, or at least what the author prescribes them to be. You read about uh J.K. Rowling, you may find yourself persevering a little bit more, just like she did, you know, writing a writing the first Harry Potter novel at different coffee shops and getting rejected, I think, 22 times. So just, a, just another third tip, if you're listening to this and, uh, and you're trying to figure out how, how to build an environment, I would just find, really, a, a anyone who has a good biography about it and just start reading about them.
0: Can you talk about this in light of, sort of the rewards that you give people who win the Pioneer game? Because I know part of that is you fly people out to San Francisco where they can meet like-minded people. How important is that to the process? How helpful is it? And how do you structure those meetings such that people get the most out of them?
1: Yeah. Um, So in an ideal world, we would do everything digitally. The challenge is in the digital world, the bandwidth in terms of kind of tribal bonding that humans can have is very constrained. We're getting better at increasing it. Obviously, we have more than text, We have video and, and, you know, uh, Zoom calls, what have you. But it is still a small fraction of what seems to be going on when humans meet face to face in the real world. And I don't think we really even know why the real world thing is so much better than the video conference thing. There's there's just like a lot of subtlety there that I think needs to be respected and studied. And until we have like some crazy AR thing, I think we need a little bit of a hybrid model where people uh where at least for for our pioneers, we we bring them out and we have Uh, an opportunity for them to meet and bond with each other and then you know they're free to go back to wherever they came from you don't you don't have to stay here forever Uh, and i'm actually agnostic to its location i think silicon valley is probably really inspiring and interesting if you're starting a company but it could very well be that boston or singapore are the right place if you're working on i don't know research in biology Um, i think the really important thing is they meet each other in reality and and there's a lot that we're That we're taking into account as we kind of design these pioneer meetups or or summits to make sure the first, especially the first 24, 48 hours create a lot of bonding between, between folks, because ultimately the strength of pioneer will, will just be the strength of our network. And when you know someone really well, when you really feel like you're part of kind of the same tribe, um, you start, there's a lot of interesting things that go on, right? Where you start doing things, even when there's no economic incentive for you to do so. And you start generally playing like a a very infinite long game with them, like good examples between us, just because I don't know, I feel some camaraderie because we're both going after the same goal. We have this kind of Stripe and Patrick connection. I will help you out, even though I've no incentive to do so. Uh, And it's that kind of human to human kind of collaboration spirit that we're really trying to foster. And I think a lot of that gets strengthened when you meet people,
0: even just once in the real world. I think it's easy for people to look at companies as just these machines, these organizations that exist for no other reason than to make money. And what often goes overlooked is that by starting a company, you can have an impact on the world. If there's something that you're really annoyed by, something that you don't think is good, that you want to change, that you want to improve, that you want to start, uh, oftentimes starting a company is sort of the best vehicle for bringing about that change. And I think Pioneer is a good example of you wanting to see a change in the world and starting a company in order to do that. What's your take on having an impact by starting a company versus doing it through other methods?
1: Um, The most important thing for me is that, taking a step back for a minute, people are incredibly productive when they are pursuing something where they, number one, are incredibly passionate about, two, believe they can accomplish their goal, uh, and three, usually have had the idea on their own um, so that it truly envelops them. And I'm more interested in creating more circumstances where that happens than I really care about whether it's a for-profit company or someone, say, doing research or someone making music. The fundamental difference between, say, Albert Einstein and Steve Jobs is not value creation. It is value capture. And value capture is somewhat important to pioneer in the long, long term, because what we would like to one day is have one of our pioneers actually start Facebook so that you know say we can potentially buy equity in that Facebook so that we can fund you know 10 million pioneers um, so it would be nice if we we're able to capture some value as well but I'm not eminently worried about that the, the more immediate boss we need to defeat is people deciding not to follow their dreams, people deciding to work at Accenture or IBM um, instead of the the kind of weird uh, idea they had about biology or machine learning or company. Even I think the world could stand to have more interesting weirdness basically. And and I think we want people to by, by having people follow their pursuits and dreams will kind of create that fractured reality. So I I, I don't really have an opinion on, you know, if you can have more impact as a, as by starting a company as opposed to doing research, I think both, You know, I don't think the Internet would would be around without DARPA funding research, nor would self-driving cars be. Um, But I also think companies like Cruise and Waymo will change the world as well. So I think both are really important. They both have different modes of funding. But I think we could stand to have, again, kind of 10 times more really ambitious people working in, in both modes.
0: Where does age come into things? You're a young guy. You're extremely precocious. You're running all these AI initiatives at Apple at age 23. How does somebody's age play into their potential to do something world-changing? And is this something that you guys look at with Pioneer?
1: Yeah, look, we're open-minded. Um, we'll fund, you know, greatness in in pretty much any age. I mean, obviously there's a minimum where I think a program like Pioneer could, could be a little bit of an overdose for people, say if you're 12. But you know, beyond that, if if you're at an age where you're kind of ready to to, to start playing the the kind of video game of whatever project that is. Um, We'll fund you. I I do think the, to me, the, and I'm still learning this whole age thing, but it seems to be basically aging is a trade of novelty for pattern recognition. So when you're young, the strength that you have is that everything is kind of new. So you're number one, willing to explore things other people have explored before, and you may be the first to find gold there. Um, it is often the case, you know, that that the innovation is not the first of a thing. You know, iPhone wasn't the first phone type of thing. You should do it better. And second, you're malleable. And so you're, because everything is new, right? So you're more responsive to your environment and you can change more. And it may be that the potency of an intervention like Pioneer is more powerful when you are more malleable. I don't feel very strongly about that, but it is something in the back of my mind. The trade though is that, I think as you age, you definitely do get more and more pattern recognition. So, you know, you don't try things that are obviously bad or you don't repeat mistakes or you've kind of seen this already type of thing. And so maybe that enables someone to to bypass the 10,000 different mistakes someone makes kind of when they're young. Um, So, you know, I don't have a firm opinion on it, but I I have wondered, you know, if it'll turn out that we end up being most useful um, for people early on in life. Both because I think the world is the existing systems in the world are are quite ageist, but more importantly, there's something interesting about
0: people's malleability earlier on in life that I think just naturally fades away. We're talking about tech startups, talking about ambition, really, and there's this sort of recurrent conversation I noticed propping up on Twitter, which is, how hard should should people work? And I have a kind of a funny story yeah. here where this past Valentine's Day, I went to dinner with you, Patrick, and John, and it was the only day where all of our schedules could align and we were actually open. <laughs> my girlfriend at the time was, was not too happy about it, actually, so my schedule wasn't that, uh, that amenable. But how do you think about work-life balance? How hard do you work? How do you avoid burnout? And is this something more people should be thinking about?
1: I think the, the real meta but, uh, kind of conversation that I find interesting is is how Twitter turns this into the most polarizing variant of it that it that it can be. Because I actually I actually think most people agree. Um, but but Twitter of course polarizes the masses. Let me explain. So I, I think even that the most extreme work hard people still believe that you should be fully rested and Cognizant and happy and motivated when you work, um, you know even Keith uh, our boy who 's notable on Twitter, I think for being in the work hard camp, will tell you that he sets you know he sets time out to properly sleep and to properly work out so that he can you know perform at the at the top of his game. Uh, actually, everyone is in mostly of an agreement now, of course they need to get their retweets and their likes so they 're going to say the most polarizing thing to each other, but m- my view is that um, No one's going, the company is not going to tell you, certainly if it's your startup, it's not going to tell you to take care of yourself. That is something you need to learn how to do. And I don't think it's acceptable to get angry at, say, a company because, I don't know, they're not giving you the the gym perk or something. That that is your job, to take care of yourself and to show up to the company you know, every day that you're working, ready to perform. Uh, And that is kind of my view. In addition, I think you know, I think, I think that it's a little bit more about like work life harmony than balance. That is to say, if you're happy doing what you're doing, just kind of continue to do it. I certainly have phases where uh, I have, I have a tendency to in, in general work pretty hard. I, I have a I, some people call this a chip on your shoulder, but I, I just have a personally, a, a very, I'm, a, I'm my own harshest critic. And that, that propels me to work hard because I, I constantly feel like I could do better But that also leads me to burn myself out. And sometimes I burn myself out, but I already kind of know what that feels like and I correct for it. And so if if I burn out, then, you know, I spend a weekend doing absolutely nothing or going to the woods somewhere and then I feel kind of recharged. So the the insight from here is not like a number of hours you should work a week and a disagreement about that is that... I mean, you really got to treat yourself like an adult and take care of yourself, whatever that means. I mean, if that means spending time with your kids so that you feel fulfilled and that you raise a great family, then you got to do that. And if that means like going to the gym, then you got to do that. No one, I think no one is implying that you should show up to work exhausted with two hours of sleep and start functioning like a bozo. I think, you know, you should set yourself up for success to lead a productive, uh, kind of ambitious lifestyle.
0: Finally. You've made a ton of impactful and and important decisions in your life, deciding to start a company, deciding to move to Silicon Valley, deciding to sell to Apple, deciding to leave Apple and enjoy Wine Combinator, and now deciding to start Pioneer. A lot of people listening to the podcast are trying to decide whether or not they should become entrepreneurs. And if they do decide to start a project or a company, what their goal should be. Should they be trying to change the world? Should they be trying to reach financial independence? What's your advice for early stage and aspiring entrepreneurs and deciding what they should do with their lives? It's not clear to me that changing the world is the right goal. Like, I think it's okay if you find
1: yourself working on something and then slowly you end up building a narrative in your head and you're like, wow, if this really works, I could change the world. But I've actually noticed a lot of people that set out with that goal don't, somehow don't end up changing it. I think you want to really just focus on finding something you really enjoy doing, and kind of just winning at it. And this sounds really stupid, but I, I, I mean, occasionally stupid advice is right uh, or simple advice is right. And it doesn't have to be big or grand. Uh, I think you should just pick like a thing you enjoy doing. And if it's small, actually maybe better. And then just do it. And then I think, I think something really important that we try to put it operationalized in software, but you could just do this on your own ad hoc, is you must show it to other people. Um, This isn't about getting feedback from users. This is about figuring out how to motivate yourself to do it over and over. If you show it to people, especially if the people who are kind of influential to you and they like it, then boy, you've set yourself up for success. You're going to be in this positive feedback loop where you're going to want to work on that thing more and more and more. Um, So I think if you can afford to, you should just focus on kind of just like trying to find something simple and small that you like. That is certainly, I mean, that is how I got started. I got started I I got started coding. uh, The real gateway drug is I I wanted to learn how to to beat a boss in a video game. And so I got entrenched in figuring out how memory management works so that I could freeze certain variables so I could have infinite lives. (laughs) Um, And that's what I wanted. And so I accomplished that goal. And then I learned about memory management. Then I learned about C. And then, you know, I started making websites as a kid, you know, the the apps of the day, I guess. And then I started selling those websites to people, but it was all because like I just focused on stuff I was excited about and motivated to do. And so if you can't afford to do that, consider yourself blast first, because there's a lot of people in the world that can't, you know, that are, that are treading water in, in a subsistence mode. But if you can't afford to do that, boy, take advantage of it. I mean, turn your day into something that is as fun to play as Fortnite or Age of Empires.
0: That is sage advice. Well, thank you so much, Daniel, for coming on to the podcast. Can you tell listeners where they can go to learn more about what you guys are up to at Pioneer and also what's going on in your personal life as well? Yeah. So Pioneer is uh, at pioneer.app.app.
1: Uh, we run monthly tournaments, so you should sign up for one. Uh, and sooner rather than later, you can play multiple. Many people uh, are playing uh, multiple tournaments. There's no cost to losing. Uh, it's just like a game. You do it over and over and over. So just don't think about it too much and sign up for one. And then about me, um, probably the, the easiest thing to do is Twitter. I am um, at uh, Daniel Gross on Twitter. I occasionally release a small fraction of my thoughts uh, to the internet.
0: So you can keep up with me there as well. All right, Daniel. Thanks again for coming on. Of course. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. If you enjoyed listening to this conversation and you want a really easy way to support the podcast, why don't you head over to iTunes and leave us a quick rating or even a review? If you're looking for an easy way to get there, just go to ndhackers.com slash review, and that should open up iTunes on your computer. I read pretty much all the reviews that you guys leave over there, and it really helps other people to discover the show, so your support is very much appreciated. In addition, if you are running your own internet business or if that's something you hope to do someday, you should join me and a whole bunch of other founders on the ndhackers.com website. It's a great place to get feedback on pretty much any problem or question that you might have while running your business. If you listen to the show, you know that I am a huge proponent of getting help from other founders rather than trying to build your business all by yourself. So you'll see me on the forum for sure, as well as more than a handful of some of the guests that I've had on the podcast. If you're looking for inspiration, we've also got a huge directory full of hundreds of products built by other indie hackers, every one of which includes revenue numbers and some of the -the behind-the-scenes strategies for how they grew their products from nothing. As always, thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.